0: This episode is a rebroadcast of the AB Effect, an episode we did last year about this really strange psychological phenomenon that you will recognize once you start to hear the explanation behind it, but it's something that, though common and impactful in this world, wasn't really researched or quantified until recently. And I'm doing this rebroadcast because I... Just lost a close, long-time personal friend, not to coronavirus, to something else. And I just needed to take a hiatus for a second. But the next episode will be a new episode. It will be a very special episode. It will be all about Black Lives Matter, the protests, the impact of systemic racism, police brutality, all those things. What we're talking about right now. But I'm just going to hand over the entire show to the Association of Black Psychologists, and they're going to do whatever they want with the show. So that'll be coming up in two weeks. And after that, I have new episodes about cults. I interviewed one of the world's leading experts on cults, and there's an episode about street epistemology, and there'll be an episode about uh, de-biasing yourself looking at cognitive biases and ways to de-bias yourself. There's actually a disaster avoidance expert who I interviewed who wrote a book about that very topic. So lots of new content on the way. But until then, please enjoy this rebroadcast of the AB Effect. down into the middle of the welcome to the you are not so smart podcast episode 182 If you are listening to this and you are a human being, then I'm pretty sure that like myself, you have some regrets. And I bet you've considered how things might have turned out differently had you done things another way, had you made different choices, had you had the knowledge you have now. We talk about this sometimes, this feeling. We ask each other, if you could go back in time and change just one thing, what would that be? And we think about this historically, too. For instance, we wonder what would have happened if the United States had not dropped the atomic bombs on Japan. Was that horrific act necessary? And when people argue about this, they often say that if the bombs hadn't been dropped, many more people would have died than died in the explosions and their aftermaths. And others will say, well, that's not true. The war would have ended anyway. And what happened at Hiroshima and Nagasaki was superfluous, to use a word without nearly enough power to convey that idea. And we do this with elections when the outcome is surprising. News stories will appear for years attempting to explain the deciding factor that led to one person winning and not the other. Because you can't run history again. Because you can't change a few variables and then see what happens next. So we're all left with history as it has unfolded, and so we can never know for sure what actions led to this present. And with products and businesses and billionaires and inventors, it's the same. We can't go back in time to see what one decision, if any, led to their great successes or to someone else's great failure. Because history only happens once. So we can't go back and investigate what factors were important. When we think about our own lives and what we might have done differently as individuals or cultures, we often don't consider chaos and randomness the happenstance of change and the billions and billions of variables outside of our control. Because even if we did go back and do things differently, the outcome might not be much different. Or it could be worse. In other words, do an A-B test. Before you go messing with timelines and alternate realities, because the more logical fantasy, instead of going back and changing that one thing we regret, would be to go back and change one thing and then compare the results all the way down to the present to see if it's better or worse or no different than what we've already experienced. it surprise you to learn that this concept, the A-B test, the very idea of it, is a very, very new idea. As a thinking tool, it's an innovation that appeared only about 200 years ago, and it more or less created science and medicine. In science, they call it a randomized experiment. In medicine, they call it a randomized controlled trial. And either way, you take a sample of people or a sample of anything, whatever you're studying. You take a random sample of that, you divide that sample into two samples, and then change one variable between them, conduct your study, and see if you get two outcomes. Or you might divide your samples into three groups and make one of them a control, for which you change nothing, or you apply a placebo or something like that, and you see what you get when you compare the effects of nothing versus variable A versus variable B. And this is an incredibly powerful tool because instead of wondering what could have happened if you had made a different decision, instead of imagining a different universe or timeline, you run an experiment to see what happens when you make two or more decisions and let them play out in front of you while you take rigorous notes. And then you share those notes with other people and they repeat it and that's science. Tracing out those timelines as they occur and learning from them and then applying that to the world at large. There's a great story behind how we invented this tool. We invented it during the Nuremberg salt test of 1835. Of all things, this was an experiment to see if homeopathy actually worked. Yes all the way back in 1835 and it was conducted in bavaria by quote a society of truth loving men you see at that time and in that place homeopathy had become all the rage among the aristocracy all the rage for treating all manner of illnesses and Friedrich Wilhelm von Hoven, head of local hospitals there, wrote a scathing review of the practice explaining that homeopathic remedies had zero effect on people's health and whatever people experienced would be the same thing they would experience without anything at all or just with the belief that they had received a cure. Now, Johann Jacob Reuter, a homeopath, objected to this. And so, everyone decided to put the stuff to the test. The two men met, along with 120 citizens from the community with illnesses and some other doctors and some other truth-loving men, all in a tavern with experimenters who numbered 100 vials, randomly shuffled them, split them into two lots, and filled one set with snow water and the other with the homeopathic solution created by Reuter. The vials were then distributed, and an independent set of observers recorded which vials had which stuff inside and who had received what. And then they sealed and protected that information. This way, the recipients and the doctors had no idea who got what. And then three weeks later, everyone gathered again to see the results. First, people reported what they had experienced, if anything. And then the sealed information was opened, and everyone learned what everyone drank, and it was all compared. They found that only eight people reported any effects at all. And among them, half had taken the water and half had taken the solution. And so, the truth-loving men concluded that homeopathy was bunk. Or, as the Journal of the Royal Society of Medicine reported, quote, The organizers concluded that the symptoms or changes which the homeopaths claimed to observe as an effect of their medicines were the fruit of imagination, self-deception, and preconceived opinion. that in many ways, modern medicine was born. They had invented control groups, randomization, blinding, placebos, and other aspects of experimental design that we use today. Once we figured out that we could do this, we were able to put all sorts of things to the test: medical procedures, drugs, education techniques, financial structures, public policies, folk remedies, martial arts techniques, farming practices and on, And on and on. Instead of making a choice between A or B and living with it, or deciding to stick with tradition or choose a new path, or to try some alternative medicine or to do nothing at all, we could try out both choices and see which led to the preferred outcome. So a whole lot of things, once science and medicine got rolling, turned out to have no real effect, or to have a worse effect than their alternatives. A whole lot of practices and policies turned out to be based on superstition or wishful thinking, or they were politically motivated or in some way emotionally motivated instead of being based on evidence. So, you would think that, in general, as an idea, as a practice, the A-B test would be beloved, supported, encouraged, as a way to test out policies and practices and drugs and treatments and everything. Should we use cancer drug A or B? Should we try gun control policy A or B? Should we try education technique A or B? It seems like our reaction to this question should be to test A on some of the people and B on the others and then look at which one works best and go with that moving forward. But as you will learn after this break from the scientists themselves, New research shows that a significant portion of the public does not feel this way. Enough people to cause doctors and lawmakers and educators to avoid A-B testing altogether. This is a new discovery, and they're calling it the A-B effect. And they define the A-B effect like this. Regardless of the reasons, implementation of an untested policy based on intuition about what works, for many, is less likely to invite objection than rigorous evaluation of two or more otherwise unobjectionable policies. In other words, if we don't know which is better, A or B, or even if A or B don't work at all, people would rather live in a world where option A is the norm or option B is the norm than they would live in a world where options A and B are being tested at the same time. Yeah, I know, it's weird. But I promise, you probably feel this way about something. And it'll all make sense in a minute, after this break. Oh, I want to talk to you, I want to talk to you about the Great Great Courses Courses Plus. Plus. Uh, I just think there should be more jingles in podcast advertising. So please forgive me, The Great Courses Plus. I love your product, and I think that would be a great jingle for you. By listening to this podcast, you can probably tell that I love learning. I love exploring all these different ideas out there, floating around new stuff, weird stuff, old stuff, things that I didn't know existed until recently. And one of my favorite resources to do all that, to discover new information, is The Great Courses Plus. I'm looking at my watch list right now. That's what they call their cue. And what do I have in there right now? I have why you are who you are, investigations in human personality, the science of information from language to black holes, zoology, understanding the animal world, the great trials of world history and the lessons they teach us. Um, that's just a small sample of all the things that I'm going to eventually get to. All of these courses are usually 10 to 20 lectures and each lecture is about 30 minutes long. And I'm looking at the front page right now and I see What is the Coronavirus? Understanding Great Music, Black Capital, African Americans in Washington D.C., America's Long Struggle Against Slavery, Cooking Across the Ages. Um whoa, huh? I'm actually there's so much stuff on the front page that I could take like 15 minutes to just tell you about each one of these from Outsmart Yourself, Outdoor Fundamentals, fighting misinformation, the New Testament, the Celtic world, the rise of the novel, introducing botany, nature of the earth, chemistry in our universe. Uh, And that's just stuff that it's like, I think you, David McCraney, would like these things. If you get in here, you're going to find a cornucopia, a smorgasbord, a plethora, a panoply of things that you didn't know that you didn't know. And once you get in here, you will know these things And then you can tell people about them on your podcast. I hope you do this. I love The Great Courses Plus. And here's the thing. Uh, They're a fantastic advertiser. And you don't have to take my word for it. Because this is what other learners had to say about The Great Courses Plus. One said, I have already learned more than I ever dreamed I would. Another said, this is a steal considering how much you will learn and improve your life. And I agree. There's something for everyone with courses ranging across topics like science, history, personal development, and even hobbies like yoga or chess. And with a great Courses Plus app, you can watch or listen anytime or anywhere. I know you're going to love this. I can't think of anyone who would not love this. It makes a great gift. It makes a great gift to yourself. It is something you can watch on your phone, your tablet, your computer, your television, in your car, on an airplane, on a train even, perhaps even a boat. I think... You should do it, and you can do it right now for free, for nothing. Don't wait any longer. Start exploring with your free trial at thegreatcoursesplus.com smart. That's all you have to do. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com smart, and you get this for free. Sign up now at thegreatcoursesplus.com smart. 2020, wow. If you're stuck at home right now, if you're feeling isolated, if you are doom scrolling, yes, there is a term for going through your social media and just gorging on bad news until you just put down the phone and go, okay, all right, I don't know. If you're worried about the state of things, if you're feeling anxiety or depression or stress, and I know I definitely am, I'm in the middle of finishing a book and dealing with a personal loss, and keeping up the podcast, and a million other things, I'm sure you're feeling all sorts of levels of stress, and anxiety, yourself. And I can tell you something that has been just absolutely amazing for me, both before all this and right now, is BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers online professional counselors who will talk to you over video on your phone or on your tablet or on your computer, and they're licensed online therapists, and they will give you the help you need. BetterHelp therapists specialize in depression and stress and anxiety and relationships and insomnia and family conflicts and all that. But the best thing about it is that you will connect with a counselor that really fits you. And you fill out this questionnaire. They try to find someone who is just right for you. And if you feel like that person isn't quite right, you can sort of re-roll the whole thing until you find someone that works at no extra charge. You fill out the questionnaire, they assess your needs, you get matched with a counselor in less than 24 hours, and you can schedule secure video or phone sessions with this therapist in addition to getting unlimited exchanges through text messages through the app, which I find also amazing. That part of it by itself would be worth the whole thing. And if for any reason you're unhappy, like I said, you can request a new counselor anytime for no extra charge. And you're able to get this professional help when you want it, wherever you are. You schedule the appointments to fit your lifestyle. BetterHelp is great not only because of all these things I've told you, but because it's very affordable. And if finding a counselor in your area is difficult, this is that's what it was for me. It was very difficult to find a counselor in my area that I felt I could really fit with. That is something that you get through this, and the prices are very fair. And our listeners get 10% off of their first month. You will get 10% off of your first month if you use the discount code Y-A-N-S-S. I think everyone should be in therapy. We've done shows about it, and I think you should get started today. Go to BetterHelp.com Y-A-N-S-S. That's BetterHelp.com Y-A-N-S-S. They have my resounding, true, authentic endorsement. I love this service. I hope you use it. Talk to a therapist online right now and get help. BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. And now we return to our program. I'm David McCraney, and this is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. Hi. Hello there. Hi. <laughs> wow. Tag team, I had no idea you were married and that made my day, I have to tell you.
1: <laughs> well, it made our day too. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's so cool.
1: Um, it's a good thing we're married since you're making us get so close <laughs> together. <here.
0: laughs> yes. This is actually, a, I've been hired by a, a company to secretly um, bring you closer together. That's the, that's the, uh, it's a little trick we have. It's a way to make money on the side when you're that's a. That's Michelle book. Meyer and Christopher Chabri, the married scientific super team who just put together a really fascinating new study into something they're calling the AB effect.
2: I'm Michelle Meyer. I'm an assistant professor at Geisinger. Uh, I'm also the associate director for research ethics uh, and with Chris Chabry, the faculty co-director of the behavioral insights team at Geisinger.
1: And I'm Christopher Chabry. I'm a professor at Geisinger. I study cognitive psychology, behavioral science, uh, and behavior genetics, and also co-direct the behavioral insights team.
0: Um, and this probably has no bearing whatsoever on our program, but um, you are married. How how common is that in academia in this way?
1: I was going to say we're married every day. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, uh, Almost every day. <laughs> I think there are several husband and wife teams yeah. or partnership teams. Uh, I can't think directly of any right now. Oh, who I sort can. Of co-direct a lab or whatever. Um, who can you think of? Well, I'm not
2: going to name names. Oh. <laughs>
1: of public evidence, kind of, that's sort of, kind of creepy
2: talking about other people's lives, but I can think of well, offline. I'll remind you.
0: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you are married. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, I was, I just, it just popped in my head that maybe this AB testing thing is interesting on another level, just because if you're in a marriage, you can't AB test a lot of stuff. Like you just have to, <laughs> you have to go with the way it is. And I, you're not able to run a second marriage to see if it would be better the other way. I don't know if that influenced you in any way, but I'd like to believe it did
1: uh well, that's an interesting theory. certainly you can't be uh you know married to multiple people at the same time and yeah run a randomized experiment like on Big Love or something like that. That would have been a good episode for one of those uh those Mormon marriage series
0: um I certainly have wanted to A/B test things in relationships in the past. So, um, and maybe that's what relationships are. Like, okay, this one's an A, and the next one will be a B, and then we'll compare and contrast. <laughs> um, that's just what that's just what dating is. Dating is a giant randomized experimental uh, procedure, uh, and for in some cases, it is double blind. Um, so, let me uh, before we get the into talking about the research, I just want to make it clear to listeners what an A-B test actually is, um, you know, what a randomized experiment is, and why they're so important. So I'll just ask that as one general question and answer it uh, separately, together, however you want.
1: So A-B tests are a term used mainly nowadays in the technology industry and the Internet businesses for running a randomized experiment to compare effects of usually two different kinds of business policies broadly speaking so a business policy might be two different discounts you might offer for people to use buy your product or two different versions of a web page with the fonts or the colors or the placement of things different uh, or uh, any sort of two things you might want to compare but it could be more than two things as well it's just sort of the most simple cases two two different versions of something and you want to randomly assign your customers or your employees or whoever interacts with you, you want to randomly assign those people to the different versions and find out which version results in a better outcome, which might be more sales or more uh, engagement by your users, like staying on your website longer or uh, better you know, health outcomes for people or anything like that. So it's it's sort of the modern business terminology for the randomized experiment, which in healthcare is called a randomized controlled trial, where you just randomly assign people to different versions of something. In a randomized controlled trial, often there's an explicit control condition, which is sort of nothing special, like just business as usual, or they don't even know that they're being used as a a control group. Um, But all of them are variations of the same thing, which is the randomized experiment, which... Speaking for myself, I think is sort of one of, you know, humanity's greatest social inventions, meaning it's 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 an invention of a way to organize human behavior that enables us to learn uh all kinds of things that we wouldn't really learn with any confidence or certainty or without bias if we didn't actually have the ability to run randomized experiments. And it was only it was really only invented about Two hundred years ago or so, in, in its in its modern form, so it's sort of a recent social invention. It's younger than democracy. It's younger than independent, you know, independent courts and, and things like that. It's a pretty modern social invention, um, considering its its utility.
0: Yeah, I think about it in this term, like, like it's so young and it's weird. Like, um, there are all these social issues that you think about that have to be attacked with some kind of policy, and whether it's say, you know, you think of something like gun control. Um, and people have differing opinions on what ought to be done, but everybody kind of gets stuck in a, well, let's not do anything. Um, and you could, you know, separate the country into two sample, two groups and have gun control and be applied in a certain way in one and in a certain way in another, like from a top down kind of way, and then just gather that evidence at the level of the federal government and then decide what you want to do with it. Um, instead of this sort of bottom up thing that happens um naturally or pseudo naturally i guess with states and counties and that sort of thing it's it's strange that it's it's such a powerful tool and it's not it's only applied in certain domains do you feel that way too or am i just getting weird
2: no i think that's exactly how we feel um you know it's not always possible to uh conduct an a b test or an rct we talked you know um sort of ingest at the beginning of the program about, about randomizing dating or marriages or parenting decisions. Um, but in seriousness, there are some cases where it's just not feasible to do that, but there are an awful lot more cases where it is feasible and extremely useful to do it. And alas, uh, policymakers, people in charge of various policies and practices aren't, aren't doing it. And I, I think it's fair to say we think that they should be doing
1: more of it in general. Mm. I th- yeah, and I think that there's a lot more opportunities than people realize to do that kind of thing. There are a lot of different, sticking with the policy realm like you started with, randomizing states to different gun control laws might be hard because they all have a lot of uh, you know legal autonomy and, and so on. But there are a large number of sort of administrative jurisdictions like police departments, for example, where you might get some police departments to agree to adopt a certain procedure and other police departments to agree to adopt another one and to be randomized, which one they did. And in fact, there have been randomized experiments on things like body cameras on, on police officers to see what the effects really are. Do they, uh, you know, do they reduce uh, unwanted incidents? Do they increase other kinds of, uh, you know, abilities to collect evidence or whatnot? And, and, uh, you know, sort of amazingly police departments, uh, enough police departments agreed to be randomized in that way. And, and, I think until someone did that experiment, probably the vast majority of people would never have thought that you could do an experiment randomizing different police departments or different governments or different hospitals or different different doctors or units or whatever it might be.
0: I know in writing about things like survivorship bias and stuff, sometimes and actually Duncan Watts' work, who is a co-author on your paper, like a lot of his work is about sometimes things just unfold and they will unfold that way no matter what, because of these different constants and variables in the timeline. And we just can't know historically because there's just one history. We don't get A-B tests. Um, it's, it's It seems it, it, the fact that you can choose moving forward to do one seems like such a powerful tool that um, it's kind of odd that you have pointed out in this paper, there has been some loud and public media covered debacles as of late in which people became very upset about this very idea of doing that. Um, If you could run through some of those, and uh, just for the audience, because I hadn't heard of some of these at all, um, I guess we could start with the Pearson Education thing. What happened there? What's going on with that?
2: So Pearson Education is a a large uh, company that produces, as I understand it, software. Uh, and in this particular case, it produced um, a software package for math and computer science students. And it was really sort of problem set homework software, um, and the status quo, so the business as usual product, until they ran this experiment that I'm about to describe, had been as you might imagine. You offer people, you offer students. A number of problems to solve and they either try them or they don't they can try as many times as they want They either get them right or they don't and so forth and so on and the software didn't really respond um, in any particular way and someone at Pearson had the idea what if we encouraged students um, trying to solve these really very difficult problems to make more attempts to try a bit harder before giving up and they thought of actually in this case two different ways based in social science of encouraging people to try harder. Um, and one was based on a sort of mindset theory. Uh, and the idea was to sort of say, you know, great programmers aren't born, they're made. It takes a lot of practice. Um, so the idea is, you know, if, if a student got a, a question wrong, that would be the sort of the software would show them this, this type of mindset message. Um, the other idea was was based on anchoring, and so the idea is here is tell them how many uh, other of their of their peers um, using the software anywhere had to how many times those people had to attempt to get the problem right before they in fact got it right, and so that message might be something like, "Hey, don't give up." You know, most people had to try seventeen times before they figured this problem set out, um, but and then I, you know, haven't, we haven't spoken to anyone in person, so I'm just hypothesizing what was going on in their mind, but um, they didn't know what the effects of any of these three conditions would be. The three conditions being the two encouragement conditions I described and the business as usual, no encouragement. And so what they did was they randomized um, colleges and universities to get one of those three versions of the software. And it's, it's important to note that Individual students weren't randomized. You could imagine a legitimate concern if in my classroom that's graded on a curve, if I'm randomized to one version and, and my, my students or my, my classmates are randomized to other versions, whichever one turns out to be best, well, maybe they're going to get a better grade or something. So here it was it was what's called cluster randomization, where the randomization is at the unit of the college or university. So these these are not students that are competing with each other in any way. Uh, and so they did this experiment, and it was a short a short-term experiment. They didn't tell the learners, they didn't tell the universities, the professors, really anybody. Um, and as I recall, there were some mixed mixed results, um, but um, randomizing people to get the encouraging treatments in fact, did not, as I recall, did not result in them making more attempts. Uh, it was, intuitively you would think, I think, I would think that encouraging people would get them to make, you know, more attempts, uh, which was the goal. But in fact, that did, didn't happen. And had they given everybody uh, the encouragement condition, either of them, I suspect that no one would have really objected. It's a little hard. I mean, people have their views, science, social scientists have their views about mindset theory and anchoring and so on. But it, as a, at a broad level, who can really object to encouraging students um, not to give up? That sounds pretty benign. Similarly, you might think that that's a good idea, but there was no outrage that we know of um, before they tried that. That is with business as usual, with just a a vanilla version of the software where students were free to try it as many times as they want. It was kind of on them whether they tried it again. No one complained about that or thought that was outrageous or beyond the pale, but when the media reported that this very brief RCT or AB test was conducted to figure out which of these three different versions of the universe was actually going to be best. um, Some people were were quite upset.
0: Yeah. um, That's the weird thing about this is uh, that if you you don't know you're being AB, like if it's just foisted upon you and you have no choice or option, uh, people wouldn't complain about it. But if you, do know that there's one there are two groups involved, then people start to feel icky. Um, the what happened with OKCupid and what happened with Facebook, uh, just to briefly run through those because it's a similar situation.
1: Well, so in the case of OKCupid, um, very briefly, they did a series of different kinds of experiments, um, some of which are described in, in Christian Rutter's book and on on their blog. Uh, and they really highlighted Uh, the fact that they did experiment on people by calling one of their blog posts something like, we experiment on human beings. And (laughs) most the ones that were described were, um, some of them were not really A-B tests. They would just sort of turn on a feature for a certain period of time or turn it off for a certain period of time and then turn it back on and and see how behavior differed during that time. But some of them actually did involve um, randomly assigning people to different conditions. So uh, okay Cupid and, and I guess a lot of other dating sites are based on the concept that they're sort of like a matching algorithm that determines who your best matches are and then it shows you your best matches and invites you to communicate with them and and date them and you know get married to them and and so on and they uh, for a time uh, for some period of time um, would do things like tell people who were only a thirty percent match that they were really a ninety percent match according to the the algorithm, or vice versa, tell people who were really a 90% match that they were only a 30% match. And then they would measure how much communication happened between these people in an effort to, to sort of figure out how much of the power of the matching algorithm was due to the algorithm actually matching people well, and how much of it was due to the power of suggestion. You know, if someone tells you, here's your 90% match, you might go into the uh, conversation thinking that you should be with this person and they're right for you and have different expectations and so on. And, uh, you know, that obviously provoked some, some controversy as well. And Interestingly, they did find that the effect of telling people they were a 90% match was kind of comparable to the effect of actually being a 90% match, uh, compared to, compared to the 30% conditions. And this was, this was, um, more deceptive than the usual kinds of AB tests, because they're telling people something that's false. Although we should be careful not to assume that uh, the algorithm is some kind of all powerful Oracle that knows who's best for you. It was just an algorithm that Christian Rudder and his colleagues came up with and, and telling people uh, that, uh, you know, that you're a 30% or a 90% is, is speculation, even when it comes from the algorithm in the first place. So it was sort of a form of deception that uh, wouldn't go down well uh, in, you know, research ethics. Um, if it was like an academic experiment without, without consent and debriefing and so on, but it wasn't as though, They were sort of lying to them about some factual truth. That's actually what makes, I mean, the OKCupid experiment
2: interesting is that, um, you know, clearly there was deception, but I think it's important to ask at what level or where did the deception come in? The obvious answer that people give is well with this A-B test, Um, but that presupposes that, you know, the algorithm that you were, quote, really a 90 percent match well, what does that mean? The algorithm really did say you were 90% match, but we don't know that that corresponds to reality. Uh, and so arguably, there was some deception at the level of marketing the business product in general. Um, you know, OKCupid said, you know, love based on science or whatever their, their motto at the time was. Um, this is science-based matching. And the fact is they didn't really know whether their algorithm worked Uh, and you know chris said the results of this this a b test found that the power of suggestion was comparable was actually a little bit larger um, in effect size than the algorithm itself and it seems to me that that's valuable information and arguably what a responsible company should do especially if they're going to say that their product that, that they're selling is effective they should test the effectiveness or lack thereof of that product.
0: Yes, and then uh, there's one other example, and that I want to mention just because it brought something. I think it's we all have because we all experienced it, I guess, in a way, or we were all um, we all could have experienced it because just about everyone's on Facebook. Facebook did this thing where they played around with whether or not positive or negative posts would impact users' happiness. How did they do that, and how did they measure it?
1: Uh, Well, so this was yeah, this is kind of an infamous experiment. Nowadays, it was published actually about five years ago. Now, even more than five years ago, uh, again, it was a sort of a complicated experiment in the way that they altered, um, you know, sort of the normal Facebook newsfeed algorithm to, to display different proportions of things. But um, it, it, the simple version is they, they, they slightly increased or the number of um, posts you would see in your newsfeed with either positive or negative words in them sort of defined just by a dictionary of what words are positive and what words are negative, um, or they would decrease uh, the number that you would normally see. And and by normal, I mean by sort of their default algorithm for showing you stuff, which is already making choices about what to show you to uh, affect your engagement and and how much uh, you interact with people and so on. And their measure of the, the effect of manipulating the proportion of posts you see with different words in them was... The extent to which you use those same kinds of words in your own posts so there were a few sort of inferential leaps they, they sort of um you know called it emotional contagion in the sense that the idea was like if i see more positive posts i might make more positive posts myself just by you know using more positive words in my posts. or if i see more negative ones and make make more negative ones and they interpreted this sort of through a social network um you know theory that says that's sort of like emotional contagion emotional states spreading through the social network Um, but uh, there are other you know there are other psychological explanations for what could be going on I think some of the reaction to this experiment when it was revealed at the time it was published in in PNAS um, uh, was uh, maybe based on you know well perhaps based on the misconception we're going to talk about that's the subject of our paper but also probably based on some misconceptions about what was actually done you know, in the experiment and why the experiment was done. A lot of people sort of thought that, well, Facebook is just, you know, playing around, you know, to see what they can do to people. But as Michelle pointed out, and and I think quite, you know, quite rightly, um, there were competing um, theoretical ideas in psychology and social science about the effect of seeing all these posts from people on Facebook. Do, does seeing a lot of people doing happy things make you feel sad or make you feel like you're, you're missing out or you're left out or they're not including you or does it make you feel happy or likewise does um does seeing a lot of sad stuff you know sort of make you feel sad or is there some kind of social comparison where it makes you feel better about yourself i mean who, who knows it's this technology was invented you know 15 years ago 10 years ago it's responsible to to do experiments on it to see what the effects actually are and, and indeed they found i think a very small you know a very small emotional contagion effect so probably something that in, in practice doesn't really doesn't really have a great effect, especially compared to, you know, just the normal emotional um, things that happen to people during the day. At any point in time, you can encounter very emotional information from a wide variety of sources. So a little bit more or less on Facebook was, was really not um, having a a tremendous effect on people.
0: So with all these things, and and by the way, it is weird to to, to know that you're the thing about Facebook that, that I think is that fascinates me more more than anything is that Facebook already does things all the time without your knowledge. I mean, they, the entire platform was built without your input and you're participating with it. You know, they change things all the time and you're like, okay, I guess it works like this now. But, um, and they do all sorts of strange practices, uh, from the outside view of how they present information to you or not. And the, but by actually dividing people into two groups and then giving one one kind of Facebook and the other another kind of Facebook, that is what made people upset. And that seems weird and illogical and strange that people have this reaction. And that is what you are studying is that you've identified that that's weird and strange. And you're calling it the AB effect or the AB illusion. How would you, do, how, what do you think we should call it, first of all? And then, um, what would you define it as? What is sort of the formal definition of this thing that we're talking about?
2: Well, we we call it the A-B effect in the PNAS paper, and we define it as thinking that running an A-B test of two policies, A and B, is less appropriate than either giving everybody A or giving everybody B.
0: I just think that's wild because even – my favorite things in psychology are those things that when you write them out, like I just did the last episode about pluralistic ignorance, and when you write it out as a as like a definition, it it's a brain teaser as just a definition. And this has kind of that quality, just the idea that doing a <laughs> compare comparing the effectiveness of A versus B is more it feels more inappropriate than just giving people A or B and not giving them. Uh, and not testing it at all, or or not giving them um, not giving them the choice between being in groups A or B. You just are is feels less icky than conducting an experiment in which you might be in A or you might be in B. I just think that's so fascinating and weird, and just in explaining it is weird.
1: So I, I think I, I think you're right. It is it is weird, and and I feel it myself. Like I to me, this effect has power because I can sort of feel it myself. It feels to me weird to be experimented on or to know that people are experimenting on me when I know that they're running A-B tests or, or things like that. But it doesn't feel weird to know that everybody's changing their policies all the time and essentially doing things to you with the design of their products or their websites or their services or or, or whatever. It just doesn't feel weird to, to, to think about that. And I, I think there, there could be lots of explanations for this that we'll, we'll probably get into, but I, I think it's, it, it has the it has the flavor of one of those, um, we did originally call it an illusion because it has a little bit of the flavor of one of those things that when you logically unpack it seems hard to explain, but yet it creates the feeling. And I think even people who sort of are aware of this, like I myself am still have that feeling of it being weird to be experimented on without, without your knowledge. But as, as, by the way, as Duncan Watts has pointed out, um, that, you know, everybody who just implements a policy is actually experimenting. They're just doing a really bad experiment. <laughs> they're, they're not comparing it to something else, or they're only comparing it to something that happened in the past or in the future, or they're not even collecting the data. They're just going based on their intuition of what they hear about or whatever. So, you know, they're, all the experiments are always going on around you. It's sort of the, high, it's, it's the rigorous ones that actually seem to bother us a little bit.
0: Yeah, and Michelle, I wanted to ask you like before we get into the actually the studies that you conducted, you're the lead author on this. What what, it, what was the um what was, what encouraged you to do this? What was sort of the inspiration? Why was this something that uh, you wanted to do a study about?
2: So my area of expertise or, or one of them is research ethics and regulation. And so I've you know, I've been through the Facebook mood contagion experiment um, debacle and the OK Cupid thing and several examples in Biomedical science or biomedicine um, that have been controversial in those areas too, and you know, I fundamentally I want to live in a world that is as evidence based as possible. That's not based on tuition. It's not you know intuition. And that's not based on um, bias. It's not based on happenstance accidents of timing and geography or you know where a practitioner happened to have trained or what journal she happened to have read or conference she happened to have attended so forth and so on and you know we have a a movement now in in evidence-based medicine um, around the learning health system where we look at clinical care as an opportunity to collect and learn from data with every patient encounter Um, and that's great but if there are going to be these objections to RCTs, if there is this ickiness, as you put it, um, that could be a major threat to advancing that, that um, vision that what was then the Institute of Medicine is now part of the National Academies has called for. Um, it's, it's a way of reducing waste and profound amounts of, of error um, and poor quality in healthcare, and that's just healthcare. Um, beyond that, you know, as we've discussed already, there are lots of opportunities for evidence-based practice and policy in government, in education, in global poverty reduction, etc. And so, those are some of the areas that we that we studied in, in, in the paper.
0: Uh, that makes total sense. Why you? Have, I, I knew that was your area of expertise, and I wanted to make sure we got it in the show. And that, that this is um, this is more than just oh, look at this crazy thing that, and let's figure out why it happens. It's there's, there's a real <laughs> There's a, this actually will affect our lives uh, with a better understanding of it, and, pop, and hopefully uh, that's exactly where this will head. Okay, so you ran a series of studies. It can be a little complicated to make sense of this, but I think we can get there. Tell us what the studies were and how they worked and what you found.
2: Sure. So as we said, we were um, – you know, I had previously described what we are now calling the AB effect, and I had previously, in a previous paper, called the AB illusion um, based on anecdote. But we really wanted to see whether we could systematically observe people responding to RCTs in this way, and we just picked a scenario that was vaguely inspired by Atul Gawande's checklist manifesto book, um, which just really talks about the power of simple checklists to, uh, remind people of what they already know. Um, and, and also some, some, some other studies. And we created a vignette about a hospital director who wanted to reduce catheter related infections in the ICU, which is a real thing. And it's very costly and it's, it's deadly. Um, it's a very important problem to solve and, he, in our vignette, you know, the the director thinks um, we we randomize our participants. So it's a it's a survey, it's a survey vignette, and we randomize our participants to one of four different conditions. Um, and in the first condition, the A condition, the um, the hospital director thinks of an idea to reduce these infections, and it's to just put this list of best practices. Um, on posters and hang those posters in the ICU rooms or the procedure rooms where catheters are are placed and removed. Um, And and we ask participants, how appropriate is the hospital director's decision? That's our main question for them. Um, Other participants are randomized to see the same scenario, except this time the director has a slightly different idea. It's to take the same list of safety precautions and print them on the back of badges um, the doctor badges. And then in the third scenario, people, some people are randomized to see the same thing, except this time the hospital director thinks of both of those ideas. And instead of just picking one and giving it to everybody, he randomizes patients to get either a room with a poster or a room with a doctor wearing a badge. Um, and then the fourth and final condition is the exact same thing, except we just add a line at the end That makes it clear that after a year uh, the hospital director will observe the survival rates in both of the two conditions and he will make hospital policy whichever one helps patients the best and so that was our first our first vignette that we ran Um, and we found we asked people how appropriate is it to put up these posters something like 90% of respondents said it, it's an, it's appropriate. So we, we asked, um, we asked them to rate the appropriateness on a five point scale. And basically, um, you know, only 10, 15% of people thought it was inappropriate for some reason. And same thing, same thing with badges. Um, the, the very small minority of people thought that it was somewhat or very inappropriate to put these badges up. Um, but when we asked them about the A-B conditions, either of them, uh, something like 45 percent of participants thought that was somewhat or very inappropriate. Um, and so th- this is a very large effect in social science. Uh, and so that was that
1: was very telling for us. That, that was the very first experiment we ran. And we, you know, trying to be good, you know, 2019 behavioral scientists, we replicated it. Um, You pre-registered the
0: hypothesis? That's also really cool.
1: Yes, we did. We we pre-registered our hypotheses, um, which which just means depositing a timestamp document saying, we're going to run the following experiment with the following design and the following number of participants, and here's what we expect to happen. So later on, if that does happen, um, uh, we can... We can say that we actually predicted it in advance as opposed to pretending that we had predicted it in advance, which is possible to do if you if you don't actually timestamp your predictions. And is a problem with the rest of the psychology literature, especially in the past, where you had no idea whether people said that their predicted results were actually what they predicted or whether they're just sort of going back and finding something nice and, and saying they predicted it. So we we pre-registered our replication. Um, we replicated it in, in different ways um, with varying effect sizes. But still, in, in all cases, with this badge poster experiment, we found that more people disapproved of running an experiment than disapproved of either giving everybody badges or or giving everybody posters. And, and one interesting point um, for, from this is that there was no difference between how much disapproval there was when in the condition where we told people why the director was running the experiment and then a condition where we didn't tell them why. So it doesn't seem as though, in this case, at least people dislike the experiment just because it seems pointless or they can 't figure out the point of it, or because the doctor the director is playing mad scientist and just you know messing around for curiosity's sake, telling them that he was going to use that information to benefit all the future patients didn't seem to make a difference in, in whether they thought the experiment was okay or not
0: and you uh, not only did you replicate this. Um, you also tried this in lots of other domains, um, and you found that a pretty significant effect with all sorts of topics, genetic testing, poverty alleviation, uh, basic income, retirement plans. It's all just, it's just a really great work here. And it's a really true actual effect, at least with this, this research is, is showing that it's a real true effect. And, um, and you did a lot of replications, you, it's very airtight the way you did the work. I, but I want to talk about one of the studies you did which is has this great twist in it uh, if you could describe the one in which you had people um, to well it involved FDA approved blood pressure drugs
2: So yeah this is my favorite as well um, So we were trying to think about you know so we've established that this effect exists It's not just random Twitter outrage threads about the Facebook, Mood Contagion Experiment or the OkCupid okay Experiment or Pearson, it actually seems to be pretty systematic, um, and it's not just in the physician-patient relationship, it's in lots of domains, but, but why, why is it happening? You know, why do people object to EB tests? And a couple of different likely possibilities were that you know people might just have aversions to randomization per se. Um, if if something that you get, which we can call a treatment, which may literally be a medical treatment or it could be a policy, quote unquote, treatment, if that feels like someone didn't deliberately assign it to you for, you know, unique reasons, but it was sort of random that you got it, that might be unsettling for a variety of reasons. Um, And you might also not like the fact that different people are getting different treatments, that inequality, even if you don't know which, you know, at the beginning, which one is going to be better. If if either turned out to be better, it might be unsettling for a variety of reasons that different people get different things. So to test the extent to which either or both of those concerns were driving the, the AB effect, we created another scenario that involved a walk-in drug clinic. And so What we told our participants is that in this clinic, um, you know, as the name suggests, you walk in without an appointment and you get assigned to whatever doctor happens to be on call. And in this clinic, we told them some doctors like to prescribe uh, drug A for all of their hypertensive patients, all of their patients who need uh, blood pressure reducing medication and other, and other doctors in this walk-in clinic like to prescribe drug B for all of their patients. So, and that was common across all of the different conditions. So in this case, you have quote-unquote random assignment to a drug, A or B, purely based on the accident of when you walk in and what doctor is assigned and what, what drug he or she prefers. The, because we'd say that the, the doctor provides drug A or drug B to all of their patients, logically it can't be the case that there's some sort of precision medicine magic going on where this miraculous doctor, which is not a real thing, but a lot of people think it's a real thing. you know, I can somehow intuit from your medical record or your body which blood pressure medication is going to be best for you. No, we tell them that these doctors give all of their patients A or all of their patients B. And again, their patients are just randomly assigned to them. Um, and, of course, because you have some team A doctors in this clinic and some team B doctors in this clinic, you necessarily have a population of clinic patients who are not treated the same. They, some of them get drug A and some of them get drug B. Finally, we don't, there's no logical reason to distinguish between drug A and drug B because we literally call them drug A and drug B. So poster and badge, um, people can and did come up with all sorts of interesting, some creative, some quite legitimate reasons why one might be more effective or, or preferable than the other. Drug A and drug B, there's it's just not logically possible. So again, following suit, um, in the A condition, our participants saw uh, Dr. Jones, who decides to jump on team A and give all of his patients drug A. In the B condition, same thing. Dr. Jones decides to go with drug B. And in the AB condition, Dr. Jones decides to randomize his patients between A and B. And at the end of a year, he'll figure out which one is best. And then he'll offer that drug to all of his patients going forward with the added knowledge that in his, you know, based on this experiment, this one is better. And we found really the same thing. People were, almost everyone was perfectly happy with giving everybody drug A, almost everyone was perfectly happy with giving everybody drug B, but many, many people were quite upset. You know, something like 35% of of our participants, which is, um, again, a large effect size, thought that it was somewhat or very inappropriate to do this A-B test to figure out whether drug A or drug B was actually better.
0: So this is so, <laughs> this is so weird the, the, I, what I love about this one is the idea that like the doctor is performing the a, this, this a B thing and you don't like it. Um, but if you go into the clinic and they're effectively doing a, a B thing, people are less a little bit is still substantial, but they're less upset about it. I mean, it, it's the, at this point, it is logically the same, but because it's being presented in two different ways, people are reacting differently. What do you think is going on there?
1: Uh, what What do you mean by it's logically the same, but being presented in two different ways? You mean that they're being randomized just by when they happen to walk into the clinic versus being randomized by the doctor? Is that... Is yeah, that yeah, yeah. So, um, well, I, I think there could be a number of things going on there. But one, I think, nice point to make also is that an, an even better scenario of this is is if you go to the emergency room, Right in the emergency room, you know there are lots of people practicing all hours of the night, and there are you know thousands of emergency rooms, so there can there's all kinds of randomization going on in you know in that situation as well. So this is not an uncommon scenario in medicine. Maybe people don't think of it that much, but there's a lot of randomization effectively going on to to treatments and and therapies and and so on. Uh, I think that when you say that the doctor you know does the random assignment. Um, maybe it conflicts with people's ideas of of how doctors are supposed to function. In fact, I think it conflicts with the idea, with people's ideas of how experts and decision makers in most areas are supposed to function. We sort of have this concept we call in the paper um, an illusion of knowledge by proxy, which is we sort of think that the experts and the people in authority and so on are just supposed to know how to solve these problems. And any scenario or situation that highlights their actual lack of knowledge or the limitations of their knowledge is a little bit discomforting um, for people. And if we sort of have this illusion of knowledge by proxy, we might say, well, they're incompetent. They should just know what to do. They should just pick one and go with it. In in fact, um, in all of our experiments, we asked people to explain why they made the judgments we did. And there were several people who would say things like, um, in, in the case of the hospital director, let's say, they would say, he should just figure out which one works best and use that as though that's any different from what he's trying to do by running the experiment, right? They sort of think that you should just be able to do it inside your head. If you're an expert or an authority or something like that, that the experiment is a bit of a cop-out or something like that. So there's, I think part of it is sort of like our conception of expertise and authority um, is, is a little bit overblown in, in many cases. And it's, you know, maybe it's comforting to think that the experts really always know what to do and, and so on. But the reality is they don't and they have to learn just like, just like anybody else does.
0: Yeah, it's crazy. It's like we're okay with history being the thing that led to the knowledge. You know, the history or or the situation can be the great randomizer. But when there's an actual agent behind the randomization – it, things start to feel strange. That's what's I think most mysterious and fascinating about all this to me. Cause like life and every, just about everything in life is some strange randomized experiment. If anyone's keeping a tally of what's going on and then trying to make decisions based off the information they gain from it. And like you, the example of the emergency room is perfect. Like you, you get thrown into that grinder and you are randomized. What happens to you is so randomized, but they do keep a real, a really good, uh, records of what the results are and that can determine what is done in the future. But, and we, it's like, okay, that's life. But as soon as you find out that this is being done on purpose and, um, there's a plan behind it, that's when this, uh, effect that you've identified arises. And I think that's just amazing.
1: I I agree with what you just said, except that I think that the situation without the AB test is worse than what you described. Like if it were only the case, that everyone was carefully reviewing the records of all, you know, treatments and outcomes and so on in the emergency room and adjusting practice accordingly, I think that would be great. But actually, um, the experiments that the world is doing on us, you know, are not even analyzed that carefully. There's a lot of what um, what's sometimes called superstitious learning, which is when, you know, you, you adopt a policy or something like that, you make a decision. And then you see what happens after that, and you pick out your favorite part of what you just did, or the part you thought was going to have the effect, and you decide that's what caused the change. And now we're not even randomizing anymore. We're just looking at sort of sequentially. You decide that's what caused the change. We'll do more of that. And you really have no basis for even making that inference. So would that it were as sophisticated and systematic as, as how you described it. But the, the actual situation, I think, is, is even worse. And, and A-B tests are a sort of a massive upgrade over, over normal, normal business.
0: Yeah. And there's so much of, like politically speaking, there's just so much of life that uh, so many of the debates that we're having in the public square right now, some of the the ones that are like, that are really make people very upset with each other. They all seem, a lot of them seem to me, these are just evidence-based things and we could just simply, you know, randomize and test. And it's, um, it seems almost like something in what you've identified makes it feel like that's kind of off the table in some ways. Is, Is that your sense or what do you think of that?
2: Well, so, you know, this is paper one and what we hope will be a trajectory in this, in this research line. And, you know, our, our goal is having identified this effect to make it go away. Mm. So, you know, I don't know, I'll just speak for myself. I'm, I'm relatively optimistic that we can move the needle here by, by better understanding why this AB effect occurs and how to respond to it. Um, You know, maybe there's some way of uh, communicating A-B tests, whether it's a framing effect or, you know, telling people, um, you know, we want to do this A-B test. But remember, the CEO, part of being a CEO means you get to just impose policies by fiat. So this guy could just give you give everyone A or give everyone B. Here's the advantage of the A-B test. Are you okay with it now? Um, you know, we, I think we're sort of optimistic that we can at least substantially reduce the effect size of the AB effect um, by learning more about why it it exists and and addressing what what seems to bother people about it. And, and, you know, so we hope that this will have a real world impact in terms of um, figuring out the best ways to communicate AB tests to people. And that will make um, end users, participants, patients, consumers, whoever they are, more likely to participate in them when asked, less likely to become outraged when told after the fact that they were part of it. And it will make policymakers, decision makers themselves more willing to engage in this if they aren't fearful that their employees, their patients, their consumers um, might learn about this and freak out.
1: Yeah, we have definitely heard anecdotally that people don't run A-B tests because they are afraid of either having to tell, you know, their employees or customers or whatever that they were doing this, or even worse of it coming out, uh, you know, that they did it without telling them after the fact. And that part of that is, you know, we, we think part of the, the, the cause of that um, problematic situation is that people freak out about AB tests and, and maybe, you know, I, I think I, I would almost be just as happy if we could make people like AB tests better or be more skeptical of policies, of, of unilateral policies. Because I think in, in reality, people should like A-B tests better, but they should like policy imposition position less. So if we could maybe get people to meet in the middle, perhaps by reminding people, you know, the guy's going to run an A-B test. But remember, he could have just either picked A or B with no reason at all and done it. Maybe that'll make people like the test better and dislike unilateral policy imposition position a little bit more, at least unilateral policy imposition position in the absence of good evidence.
0: Yeah. Wow. There's, there's so much here. I don't know. I just feel like you, uh, you really blew open the side of the mountain and there's a lot of gold in there. It was really cool. Um,
1: <laughs> <laughs> right? <yeah. laughs>
0: um, it's just a good thing in psychology when you're like, look at all this meat on the bone. Um, I, uh, before we go, I'd like to run through these seven things that you think might be, um, contributing to this or or one of these might be more than the other, who knows? These are things you've identified that could be behind the icky feeling. Uh, And I'll just prompt you with each one of them. We'll go through it. Um, Participants may have um, rated the A-B conditions as generally appropriate because they failed to imagine superior alternatives. What does that mean?
1: So that's the idea that uh, when people just hear about a policy, they might generally think, oh yeah, that policy would solve the problem. So it's pretty good. They might not even be thinking about an alternative policy that could solve it even even better or more quickly. So in our A and B conditions, we would only tell people about one policy choice. Um, In the A and B conditions, when we describe the experiment, we are, uh, in the course of that, explaining to them that there are two possible policies. So maybe just finding out that there are more policies um, could make the uh, the policy decisions themselves seem worse. But... Um, as, as, we noted before, when we did the, um, when, when we did the, uh, the drug A and drug B, uh, even in, in the final experiment, even when we told people that, you know, Dr. Jones is giving drug A to all of his patients, we also said that there was drug B. So everybody in that condition knew that there were two alternatives and that he was picking one, you know, more or less arbitrarily or for arbitrary reasons. And they still thought it was all just fine. So, um, that, that sort of handled that possible objection.
0: Um, Another thing you came up with is that maybe some people just don't like the idea of randomization.
1: Well, that, that's a tough one. I think there is actually something to that. I mean, we, we tried to handle that, I think, with the walk-in clinic case where people are effectively randomized. But there's something about randomizing by you know dice or coins or whatever that perhaps people may take a sort of like an abdication of responsibility or a failure to use one's knowledge and expertise or a sign of incompetence or something like that. Um, I, I think there could definitely be something to that, and we'll be sort of looking into that more in future work. Randomization is kind of an unnatural thing. You know, like like we said, the uh, A-B tests are sort of a relatively recent social invention. Well, random number generators had to be invented, too. And back in the day, thousands of years ago, they, they developed sort of these bones with things printed on them to, to roll, to create random numbers. So ra- randomization is not really built into the human cognitive repertoire, and there's lots of other. And cognitive biases that show that people are sort of bad at detecting randomness, and they always see patterns, and, and so on. I think it's one of those surprisingly unnatural modern inventions that we just are not good intuitively at, at thinking about, and, and 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 feel strange to us.
0: Nolly is uh, this one. I think seems pretty big to me. The idea that it's it 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 feels bad when you um, when you're there's an absence of informed consent.
2: Yeah. So you know we we coded qualitatively the, the responses that our participants gave um, for why they made the decisions or the ratings that they did in about four of our 16 experiments. And about 18% of participants mentioned their perception that it didn't seem like there was any informed consent in the A-B tests. Um, in all of our vignettes, we are they're silent about whether there is any informed consent or not. We just don't mention it one way or the other. Um, but it's certainly a fair inference that the hospital director, Dr. Jones, whomever, was not planning on getting any explicit informed consent from patients, consumers, and so forth and so on. Um, and so about 18% of people mention that. What we think is a little bit of a puzzle is that only 1%, which is like three guys, uh, complained about the absence of informed consent in the policy conditions or the A and B conditions. And Reason why that's puzzling uh, is the reason why the whole thing is puzzling, right? It's because the same risks and potential benefits um, are attendant in the the A and the B conditions as well as in the A B conditions. So if you can impose unilaterally on me some new policy that you just thought of, whose effects are completely unknown, that's just an uncontrolled experiment um, from which no one can learn anything much, but. It still puts me at some amount of risk or uncertainty, and yet almost no one thought that it was problematic that the CEO, the director, whatever, weren't planning on getting any informed consent in those cases. It's only when you give half of people A and the other half of people B, so you can figure out which one is better for for them, that suddenly informed consent becomes um, important. It seems. And so that seems like a a logical puzzle. And, you know, it's important to to note that you can resolve that inconsistency in in either of two directions, right? You can level up and say there should be consent in all of these cases. If, If you're imposing something on someone with unknown effects, then that, you know, regardless of whether you're learning from it or not, that should carry an obligation of getting consent. Or you could level down, if you will. And say, for whatever reason, say, because it's simply not feasible to do it or because, look, that's what it means to be the boss, right? To be CEO or director, it means you get to set policy and you don't have to ask everyone's permission. Um, what That might be a, a plausible argument too, um, but then that should hold across all conditions, both universal imposition of policies as well as A-B tests of those policies.
0: You mentioned that it could be the people um – think that the experimentation is motivated by nefarious or trivial goals. I can see that being a thing for sure. I I think I felt that um, with Facebook. Uh, So I can see that being a thing. What did you find in in, in your research?
2: I think that's exactly right, incidentally, about Facebook. It's very difficult to get people to analyze the ethics of the, the mood contagion experiment abstracted from their view of the overall company. Um, In this case, as we mentioned before, you know, we initially ran two different AB conditions in our vignettes, one in which we just say he decides to randomly assign people to A and B, and the other one in which we then add this explanation after a year, he'll figure out which is best for them, and then he'll make that the policy going forward. Um, So we make it very clear that um, why he's doing it, that uh, it it has a, a beneficent purpose, um, and hopefully, effect. And it made no difference. We saw no no difference um, in terms of people's responses whether they got the shortened version of the AB condition or the long version. Also, in all of these vignettes, we purposely gave the agent a, a really good um, motive. They identified a problem, um, and they wanted they wanted to solve the problem. And it, it was basically never the profit motive. For example, it was always let's. Let's have a product to be safer or more effective. Let's keep customers more happy. It, it's something like that. Um, and consistent with that, we really didn't see any free response answers that said, you know, we did have a code for bad motivation. And we really didn't see hardly anyone that thought that our, um, our agents had a bad motivation. Some people explicitly acknowledged that they did have a good motivation. Um, that, just, that might just not have mattered.
0: There's a, this other thing that you identified, uh, we already talked about, uh, the uh, the um, the proxy form of the illusion of knowledge, which is really cool. Uh, and um, there's also this idea that people just might not like the idea that they're, they're being experimented upon. Now, that is something I saw a lot in, in some of the things you included in the paper, the links to media coverage. That comes up a lot. Just the word guinea pig comes up over and over again. Um, I can see that being a sort of knee-jerk reaction as well. What did you see?
1: Well, certainly people uh, certainly people mention that. Um, so we, we had a code in our in, in our analysis for um, experimentation, and uh, in the A B conditions, um, people you know would often make comments like the agent was playing with lives or treating people like guinea pigs or, or just that it was wrong to quote experiment. And and interestingly, we, we did use the word experiment in our vignettes. I mean, I think we wanted to make it salient for people that this wasn't an experiment going on. We didn't want people to be confused and not realize that, you know, that the agents were going to run an experiment in those A-B conditions. And and people sometimes react negatively to that. There, there could be a variety of reasons, maybe sort of cultural associate you know, cultural associations like the term guinea pigs or rats in a maze. They're just certain, you know, certain associations people have with that concept. It also seems to connote... Uh, a lack of control. Of course, the bizarre thing is, again, that in the A and the B conditions, they are being experimented on just as much. It's simply not being made salient to them. They're participants in worse experiments than they are in the A-B condition, but it's not being made salient to them. So this, this gets back to sort of the question of like, how do, how does one frame all of this so that people understand what's really going on and can make a more, a more logical decision about, uh, about uh, their opinion about it?
2: Another way of putting it is to ask whether people... Um, are are averse to the content of an experiment or whether they're actually just averse to an activity that's labeled an experiment because of some sort of cultural baggage around the word experiment. So there's, you know, there's some previous research that suggests if you give people the same kind of description of of a study, but in some, for some people, the description, you know, the activity is labeled a study. And for some it's labeled research and in others it's labeled experiment um, the ones that are labeled experiment are perceived as more risky than the others, even though they're totally identical. Um, so the language itself could be very powerful. So it's possible that if we, you know, described our policy conditions or A and B conditions as uncontrolled quote experiments, um, and/or we stopped referring to the A and B tests in the A and B conditions as experiments, that we might see a dramatic reduction or some reduction in the AB effects that we observe, which would itself be sort of interesting because rationally, you know, nothing has changed. The activities are what they are, but the label has changed. And and
1: we're, we're going to do those experiments yes. ourselves okay. and find out the that answer to that question. Yes. And, and,
2: and we are, in fact, doing many <laughs> many of these
1: experiments right yes. now. Yeah. The last one is actually
2: sort of...
0: Yeah, you uh, you, you hypothesize that it could be that this has something to do with whether or not you're familiar with these ideas. Less educated uh, less educated in the sciences, poor scientific literacy, um, maybe just never even have heard of A-B testing. This is obviously something that people are going to think might be afoot here. What did you see?
1: So in general, when we asked our participants to report their levels of education and what kind of degrees they had and so on, we found essentially no differences among people with different levels of education or even people who had a you know, a science-related uh, degree as opposed to not. Now, we, we can't take that too far. For example, I gave a talk on this work at the University of Pennsylvania to a behavioral science audience, and, and they certainly all seemed to be in agreement with us that A-B tests were we're just fine, and and all of these agents were probably doing you know okay things. So perhaps you know six years of graduate education in a specific field will will solve this problem, but that's not going to be an effective treatment in and of itself for the general public. Uh, and certainly suggest that the normal kinds of differences we see among people uh, don't explain all of what's going on. But by any means, I, I wouldn't be surprised if people who have you know studied behavioral science or whatever might might be convinced a little more of this, but I really do feel as though we were tapping into some kind of fundamental, uh, some kind of fundamental reaction. That's not purely a product of, of education and, and learning.
0: Um, okay. I want to try to sum this up and get out of here. Um, and I want to give you both the opportunity to just give us a sort of um, send off type of uh, statement of some sort. Um, and I, I try to, with the shows about things where I introduce new horrors into people's lives uh, t- to give people <laughs> some hope or some... And you've already made some statements like that already, so that's great. I'm going to use that. Uh, but I'm wondering um, two things here for both of you. what, um, what, Learning what we've learned so far with your work here, what does that tell us about the way the world works in general? And um, the second part is... With the knowledge we have now gained, what should we be doing with it? So I'll just throw that out there and let you do with it what you want.
1: Well, maybe I'll start with what did we learn about the way the world works? And I, I guess one thing that I think jumps out is that uh, the scientific method, randomized experiments, A-B tests, and so on are not intuitive. And that's a good reason for why we teach them and. School, maybe starting even in elementary school, we we teach this kind of stuff, but it still um, doesn't. You know what what we're doing doesn't make people completely intuitively familiar with this with this kind of stuff. So we we did. I think we did learn that um, you know moralization or sort of negative judgments about scientific research, you know, are, are real, and there's more work to do to figure out how to frame and, and describe that. uh, So, that people don't have those reactions or at least have them in the appropriate times, right? We we would not say every experiment is automatically ethical or should be done or whatever, but the the intensity of the reaction should be calibrated to the the true ethical issues with the situation. And one, I guess, one other thing I'd say is like also the good news is that uh, over the past 100 to 200 years, there's been a steady rise in the use of A B testing and randomized experiments across large areas of. Uh, of of human endeavor. So you've got economists running experiments, you've got, um, you've got all kinds of, uh, you know, groups of people running randomized experiments, where they wouldn't formally have been used. So they sort of started out in the biomedical domain, and with drugs and things like that, and and then psychology, but now you've got sort of at the policy level, police departments, you know, villages in in poorer countries, uh, you know, all kinds of stuff. And, and they are really leading to, I think, a vast increase in the reliability and quality of the evidence we have about what works in the world. We're just trying to help make sure that that, um, you know, that that trend, you know, doesn't get halted and that, in fact, it, it expands to more areas.
2: So I, I think, you know, I mentioned before that I'm optimistic that we will be able to frame A-B tests in a way that is more palatable, less threatening to people than what The results of this paper might suggest. Um, I've also mentioned in passing that it's not always possible in an A-B test or, importantly, in imposing policies to get individual study-specific or policy-specific informed consent. It's not always feasible. It's not always ethically or legally required either. But it's generally going to be a good idea for institutions, whether those are health systems or state or federal or municipal governments or you know universities or whatever, to be transparent about a lot of things, including what they know, what they don't know, and the actions they're taking to increase what they know. And because I think that there is, I and mean, Chris sort of alluded to this earlier too, there is a direct relationship between people's acceptance of A-B testing and their baseline belief about how much we we experts currently know. Such that I think making A-B testing less threatening will probably require institutions to be more transparent about the limits of their existing knowledge. Um, and that poses a fundamental challenge for institutions because how you message, you know, as a health system, Guess what? Medicine is largely not evidence-based. How do you message that? That's not a winning marketing message. Um, and, and people generally are, are just ignorant of that fact. It's not a happy fact. People don't, don't know it and have a lot of psychological reasons not to want to know it or believe it. Um, people's, people's views of their own doctors are very sticky. They have logical beliefs that their own particular doctor is you know above average much like we have our own beliefs that we are above average in a lot of things. So I think that's a real fundamental challenge um, and it will, you know, solving that transparency problem is, is going to mean grappling with that.
0: Is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast? For more great episodes like this one, go to youarenotso smart.com, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or iTunes. You can also find transcripts and past episodes and all sorts of other goodies at you are not so smart.com. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. The interstitial music in this episode is mostly by Snubbish, you can find on iTunes. Follow the show on Twitter at NotSmartBlog. Follow me at David McCraney. Join up with everybody else, almost half a million people, over at Facebook that's slash You Are Not So Smart. And if you'd like to support the show, just go to patreon.com slash You Are Not So Smart, pitching in at any amount gets you the show ad-free, but at the higher amounts, you can get signed books and t-shirts and posters and other things. Also, you can get extra stuff in the episodes. I'll have one little tiny extra for this episode where I ask them what they would do if they could go back and change one thing, or if they could go and do an A-B test on anything that's ever happened in the world, what would it be? Both of the uh, guests in this episode answer that. And also the show is a one-person operation which means when you pitch in at patreon you really are helping keeping the show going and i super appreciate everyone who's done that this episode was a little underproduced because i had a hurricane on top of me the entire time that's why you heard frogs belching and squeaking all throughout my part of the interview Uh, Because they really like the bazillion gallons of rainwater that fell on top of them today. The next episode, though, will be another episode kind of like the last one, like pluralistic ignorance. It will be all about something called the perception gap. And I have all the scientists who got together and put together the big report on that thing. And I'll tell you what that thing is. And I think you will really enjoy it. It'll help you in your conversations with people who see things differently than you politically. That's coming up in two weeks. I'll see you then. Are you stuck at home, feeling isolated and worried? BetterHelp offers online professional counselors who can help through video or phone sessions. Plus, you can exchange unlimited messages with your counselor using their app. Fill out a questionnaire and get matched with a counselor you'll love in fewer than 24 hours and get professional help when you want it, wherever you are. BetterHelp is a truly affordable option and listeners to this show, you will get 10% off of your first month with the discount code Y-A-N-S-S. Go to betterhelp.com.